nothing better than the feel of pen on paper. That little bit of resistance pushing back at me as I save my thoughts in a notebook. For years, I've looked to replicate that feeling on an iPad. But it's never really been the same, at least until I discovered Paperlike. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. The latest iteration of Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils that are designed for maximum picture clarity. These foils are developed exclusively for Paperlike products. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need to replace it. Within a few weeks of applying Paperlike to my iPad Pro, my Apple Pencil is getting more use than ever. Taking notes, journaling, tapping through show notes, you name it. I feel like I'm realizing the true potential of the touchscreen without sacrificing my love of pen and paper. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com slash BGA, click buy Paperlike, and select your iPad size. Ready to do more with your iPad? Head over to paperlike.com slash BGA to get started. Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And this is episode 411 BGA Questions. What is the value of a game? We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back and we are questioning this week, what is the value of a game? And maybe possibly, is there a formula that you use in order to determine whether a purchase is worthy of being made, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you, I mean, I'm interested in knowing because I don't have one at all. And we just <laughs> have one inside somewhere. Maybe. I don't know. We were just talking about this before we started recording because I recently renovated my basement and now I'm like putting shelves down and taking stuff out of storage. And I can't keep everything because there's just a lot of stuff that's just like carry over from the previous house or review copies or whatever. And I'm looking at all of it and I'm like, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like all that advice I gave everybody on the collecting and culling episode two weeks ago. Now I'm staring at it. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to do that, though. I like all these. So the value having a formula would be great because then it's numbers. I'm like, well, it's quantitative. The spreadsheet tells me I have to get rid of it. So <laughs> I got to right. get rid of it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's an algorithm and that that makes all the decisions. And this actually recently came up because I was taking a a statistics class in my doctoral program and I was like, oh, this is the worst. And I have to do it for two, I think actually three months total. And eventually, despite my best efforts, the statistics actually kind of drilled into my brain a little bit. And then, of course, as I'm thinking about all these different formulas, I'm looking at my game collection and I'm going, I knew that there was a formulization 
about what I was doing when I was purchasing these things. But I want to come back and revisit that because I think I have other facts and figures and ideas now. So that's going to be our future review. I think you'll enjoy it. I think it'll help you kind of maybe illuminate what kind of formula algorithm your brain goes through when it makes <laughs> those purchases, with the exception of Kickstarter, because then I think Kickstarter breaks every formula out there. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter, I guess we'll get to that, too. Um <laughs> Uh, and you know what? We did get a few good answers, too, from our listeners. So, like, our question of the week, we're going to do that at the end of the show because the question was just, like, what is your formula? So sure. we're going to share what other people have as well. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at this, I think, is the, is the best takeaway. And you shouldn't necessarily do what any one person tells you to do. Some people buy things on feel. Um, that's great. <laughs> as long as you don't run out of space. Because that's sure. what I do, and I run out of space. <laughs> um, so... I'm interested to see how all these numbers work. I haven't taken a math class since I was 19, so it's been a while, and I don't have any numbers in my brain. Well, we got the scales. We got the charts. We, we could do some things. We, we can pull some numbers together. We could let you know. But, Anthony, since we're talking about our feature review, before we get into our feature review, I don't know, calculations of things? I mean, Marvel United Multiverse just wrapped up. So in this particular universe, not like the others where we don't back this, we <laughs> kind of back this on this version of Earth. Yeah, I, I love it. Is there another universe where we don't back this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, there's infinite numbers of universes supposedly out there according to quantum physics. Although somehow I feel like in every version of that, we did back it. For, I don't know. It's, it seems yeah. to be the thing. That's what I'm saying, man. I don't even know. I didn't back the second one, and then I went back and tried to get a lot of it, because that's how I work. Um, yeah, this was a weird one. And I don't even know, again, we were talking about this before the show, like, how how do you measure this? Is it just a FOMO thing? Is it just, I don't want to have the, want the thing later and not have it, and sure. it's CMON, so it's hard to find it? Is it that comic book collecting mentality in the mm. back of your brain. It's like, well, I want all the issues that have that character in them. So now I have to get all the games that have that character in them. I don't know what it is because there's so much stuff in this Kickstarter that I didn't care about <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's all like yeah. B, B tier D list. B? Yeah. D list. <laughs> L list. Yeah. Way, way down the, the list. Right. And at the, I think they knew what they were doing. They're like, they threw all that stuff up front. And then at the end they're like, okay, so, you know, we've got, Megan and Kid Loki and Lalandra and Speed. And you're like, okay, who are those? And they're like, okay, fine. Ghost Rider, <laughs> Werewolf by Night, and this giant dinosaur and Red Hulk. And like, okay, I know those. I I want those. So. I think it's the dangerous thing where you know, like video games, but also board games. Board games used to have this really weird bad relationship with you know IPs, where like you know you had like, oh, if you liked the thing monopoly made a version of it so mm. you almost like kind of got some pushback you know anytime someone was like hey do you want to play a game based on that ip and you're like ah oh, it's a monopoly it's a mass production it's bad it's terrible i don't want anything to it and that was a very healthy way to exist for a while because you were picking games based upon like really cool quality mechanics and some really thin themes but good themes but you know more or less just kind of like not hardcore themes and now what we have is you know the scariest version of all which is ips that everyone loves and 
good gameplay. So now, like, it's like you were eating healthy. It was like health food and then junk food. And somehow they put them together, and it's incredibly painful and dangerous now at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. You, you often have described this game as potato chips, and that's that's what it is. Yep. I, just, I want more potato chips. I want different flavors of potato chips. And eventually I'm going to get heart disease and have to stop eating <laughs> potato chips. But for now, I'm good. Um, it's This is one of those ones that we've done three years of this now. Yes. It's like it's going to be three shelves in my basement, uh-huh. which is premium space. So... If they do it again next year, it's just going to have to be like, well, I, I can't. I just can't. There's nowhere to put it yeah. unless they do Star Wars. And then I'm at, you know, dude, we, we just said not not don't tell them things. Yeah, I, but I kind of want it. No, so. <laughs> you'll have to buy all those things if you tell them the things. It's fine. I'll sell all these random things. I don't know what they are <laughs> from the multiverse. <laughs> oh, that would be scary and painful. And I'm sure Simon's already working on those IPs because once they get this kind of like I guess this is the the perfect storm or like this is the, I don't know, like it's what everyone's looking for. Is there a board game mechanic that is accessible enough to everybody out there? Gamers like it enough to play it. And then people who don't normally play our kind of hobby board games will play it as well. It's not, there's no barrier of entry and there's still a reason to play it. And then once you have that mechanic put down, and I know other companies are working on that too, then you could just infinitely, you know, put any IP you want on it, and then it sells. And I think that's been the holy grail the whole way with just board gaming. They've always looked to do this, like Ticket to Ride. Yeah. There's been a lot of games like that too. Or Catan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, they'll they'll do it. I I just, I don't know. Here's hoping it's not an IP I care about. (laughs) Well, it's like they do all these IPs for like Zombie Side, and like I don't love Zombie Side, but if you put the right stuff in there, I think it's sure. a fun game. Like I have Black Plague, um, but like all the IPs they've thrown at it, I'm like, don't care, don't care, don't care. Thank God I don't care. Like it's just, uh, Marvel, I cared, but then that was so much money that I'm, yeah. I was, it was easy to be out on. Oh no, man! They they could do a Marvel Zombie United. Ah oh, man, that's totally what they're gonna do. <laughs> Darn it. Oh, no. That's 100%. We were talking about this before. Like, what else is left? They've gone through everything. There's like 700 characters now. I'm like, yeah, zombie versions of everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's calling it now. Season four, Marvel <laughs> United Zombies. Uh, well, you heard it here. Unfortunately, hopefully they didn't hear it. Did they hear it? <laughs> uh, they heard it. They heard it. All right. Uh, speaking of... Uh, incredibly insanely addictive marvel ips marvel united which we talked about on a previous episode is also still doing things to get you i don't know ever hooked into it marvel snap yeah yeah no this this game is uh about as addictive as it gets um and you know it's it's a mobile game so obviously it's designed to make money uh and there's plenty of problems with that but Mm -hmm. at, at the core the gameplay is amazing and it's you know, it takes two minutes to play through a game. It's, it, I don't know. We don't need to review this game again. We've kind of already gone over it a bunch. Yep. But they've managed to maintain it in a way that makes it engaging and keeps it engaging. Unless you get, like, really high in the tiers and then they're just you run out of stuff to do. Um, I don't know. I've been having a blast with it. I wish the top-end cards weren't so ridiculously hard to find. Sure. But 
yeah, I think it's going to be, I think, I mean, I still play it. I just play it every day. I think it's a lot of fun. It, it's got a lot of those kind of basic Skinner box triggers where you're always upgrading cards. You're always getting new bits. You're getting money. You're getting tokens, things like that. And if you are really in love with the game, the cost versus what you get from the cost, the cost benefit analysis, it's actually pretty good. They give you a lot yeah. of stuff for the, the amount of money that you put into the game. And there's a lot of ways to play. And it does have that kind of really bad, as you mentioned, Anthony, like that kind of MOBA mechanic where it's like, hey, here's all these new characters. They're awesome. And they're pretty much kind of somewhat broke. And then by the time they become available to everyone, you know, through regular playing means, they, you know, they incredibly powerfully just water them down to the point where they're like, oh, they're just okay now. Like now they're ready for normal play <laughs> instead of like purchase, which makes them like an auto kill. Yeah. Yeah. That is a little annoying. I, I will say it. I went in right away and I got the Zabu card mm -hmm, in, Zabu, the last, yeah. in the last season. Um, and I built a deck around that and I played that deck for the entire month. And I, I feel like I won like 80% of the games I played because it was so powerful. Yeah. Like it just that combined with Sarah and you could throw down like every card in your deck on the last turn of the, of the, of the game. Silver Surfer too. Yeah. Silver Surfer the season before that. Um, yeah. And they nerfed it like the day after the new season went up. So the <laughs> soon as you couldn't pay for it anymore, they're like, and it's less powerful. Yes. Now it's tier five. And you're going to get this as a, as a pull on a collector's box at some point and just be like, well, that sucks because cards don't good anymore. Um, I do find that a little annoying. I know why they do it and I get it. And I had fun playing with it, but I feel bad for the people who now don't get to play the best version of that card sure. who never paid for it. So That's true. I don't know. Yeah. Once, once this new, you know, new selection of cards come out, the living tribunal, oh my gosh, it takes all your points and equally divides it into all three sections. If you've played any level of Mar of Marvel snap, or you've seen any TikToks, YouTube videos about this, like people are brilliant and they have come up with, you know, ways to just land. And I mean this like thousands, right? Thousands, mm -hmm. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of just points in one section. And now that you'll be able to split that up amongst the three, I don't, I don't feel like that's going to end well for anybody. No, no. Lots, lots of long plus super powered decks with onslaught and it's, it's going to or, or Odin. Yeah. yeah it's going to be bad. Yeah. So good times. <laughs> a lot yeah. of good times in the Marvel universe. And I, I it seems at least from our perspective, our very limited perspective, Snap and United is doing more good and been better, I guess, than this last MCU, you know, phase. So Marvel's it's still true. happening. <laughs> I know. It's funny. I never thought I'd see the day when like video games and board games would outperform the MCU, but it's happening. <laughs> It's happening. And you know what? On a completely side tangent, if you haven't played Marvel Midnight Suns, also very good. Oh, very as a, cool. As a, as a board gamer. It's a card-based tactics game. Excellent. Um, with, so, lots of good Marvel stuff out there. And then the movies are fine, I guess. <laughs> and the movies. And then yeah. there are movies, and they're okay. Yeah. Ant-Man comes out this week. I'm not... I'm, honestly, it's like, I have no excitement for this movie at all, but I have children, so I'm going to go see it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean he's been he's been kind of a Marvel children family yeah. version of the movie, which is fine, but he's always been a little bit low level. I'm really surprised that this is the lead yeah. into it, but well, you gotta like Paul Rudd. Everyone likes Paul Rudd. 
Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So for some strange reason, that's everything that's happening with Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah, we changed the show, y'all. It's probably because we just spent hundreds of dollars on Marvel stuff. So <laughs> top of mind. Jeez. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with Marvel. What's going on with BGA? Yeah, so uh, again, just make sure you are, you know, checking out the Patreon. Um, we have new content up there every week. Um, we have a, a bonus episode um, that we've we've shuffled the topics a little bit, so it's a, a bit of a surprise this week what we're going to have up there. But you should check it out. We'll have a bonus episode up there um, from this last Friday, and you know, we're running our contest every week. Again, we'll do the question of the week later in the show, uh, and we'll we'll pick a winner from the answers given by our Patreon backers, and they will get a a game sent to them in the mail. Um, and lots of other cool stuff. We have our Discord channel. You can check that out. We're having a lot of conversations in there about new games, reviews that have gone up, what people are thinking about things. And uh, uh, have game nights that we're scheduling um, every week or two. So lots of opportunities to engage and have fun and support the show at the same time and, and help us put out more awesome content. All right. So that's what's going on with us. Let's get on to the games that we want to hit the table that, surprisingly enough, are not Marvel. Mm. Anthony, let's talk about our acquisition disorders. Yeah. Uh, so this is a game just announced a couple days ago, um, Dead Cells, the roguelite board game. Um, and so Dead Cells is a video game. It's a indie roguelite um, in which you play this dead dude who's like inhabited by the spirit, and you run through and you complete these various dungeons. And you try to kind of build up your power so you can, can move your way through it. I played the heck out of this game um, in 2020. And I remember it was 2020 because I was playing it when I visited you right before we got locked down the next month. Mm. Um, so as a video game, it's fantastic. They have an expansion coming out for it this year, next month, actually, with Castlevania. So wow. like all the Castlevania stuff is going to be put into Dead Cells, which is amazing. Um, and so... Le Scorpion Mask, uh, Canadian developer, got together with Antoine Bauza, Ludovic Malblanc, Corentin Lebrat, and Theo mm -hmm. Riviere to make Dead Cells, a roguelike game. Um, it's a dungeon crawler. It's cooperative. But in that alone, I would just be like, ugh, boring. <laughs> Not interested. <laughs> but it's relatively short, 45 minutes-ish. It is using, and we'll see if it's effective or not, but using that kind of roguelite element and all that really means is if, if you're not familiar with the video game mechanics is that you run through a dungeon or series of dungeons and you go as far as you can until you die and then you die and you start over right which you're like and you're thinking like isn't that just like all video games but the difference <laughs> here is you start over at the very beginning there's no checkpoints oh. and you get to keep some elements right so if okay. you get an up a certain kind of upgrade or you get a certain kind of thing that stuff comes back with you and so you're a little more powerful each time you start um, it takes time for that to build up. And a lot of the time, most of these games have random elements to them, right? The dungeons are randomly generated. So it's not the same every time. You can't just memorize the direction you're going. You just have to get better at the mechanics. Um, so a video game of, or a board game of that, I don't know how it's going to translate necessarily, but I'm interested to see how it works, right? So, you know, you're going to be exploring the different biomes, like in the game, you obviously have enemies to face. Um, and you're going to die a lot because that's, how these games work. You die over and over again, but you get a little bit better each time so that you can go further. Um, Dead Cells is not... It's very, very good as a roguelite. It's not the best, in my opinion. Um, 
Hades is probably the best one that I've ever played. Uh, and there's no board game for that. But and honestly, I don't know that anybody's successfully made a board game that really does this mechanic well. But if you throw Antoine Bowser and crew at a game, I'm interested to see what they do with it. So uh, I think it's going to be on Kickstarter, they said. And I will be checking it out because I, I love the video game. I like the design crew. It sounds interesting. And as long as it's not some stupidly expensive <laughs> box full of miniatures that I have nowhere to put in my basement, uh, I'm on board. And you're saying this is not a Marvel game. It's not a Marvel game. No, it's not an yet. all original IP. It's crazy. Not yet. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> no, this is interesting. I like the idea that you get to come back and you get to do the game again in a new version of you. Again, we talk about like the asymmetry when you play a board game is for me, at least some of the most interesting part of playing the game. And, you know, a lot of the legacy games gives you that feel. Like as you're playing it, you're transforming, you're changing. The game's mm-hmm. never the game state's now different, so that must be interesting as well to play that actually in a in a board game. Yeah, it's like Groundhog Day of the game, and mm. but with you know you you're headless and you're fighting a bunch of weird mutant monster things. <laughs> Fantastic! All right, so I'm looking at another Kickstarter campaign. This is Chomp, Sale, Couture. And Mindspace, full small boxes for big games for unique experiences. Uh, This is currently a Kickstarter campaign. It's four games, and it's being produced by All Play. This is formerly known as BoardGameTables.com. Probably BoardGameTables.com, best known for their board game bags. I'm sure that was something that they didn't want to be best known for. I think they wanted to be best known for their board game tables. (laughs) But they recently changed their name to All Play, and they previously had released four small boxes. I think we saw them at PAX Unplugged, that whole bunch of small games in play. Typically, I kind of somewhat usually avoid these kind of small games because time at the table is essential. And we'll talk about that, you know, in our future review about how do you figure out whether a game is worth your time. But these games seem to be upgraded from their last four games so let's talk about them so chomp is a dinosaur game which is pretty cool because i like dinosaurs and chomp is all about putting together uh these different tiles in order to score points and the titles of course have dinosaurs on them and different dinosaur kind of environments that are wrapped around them so think king domino where you have a card that has different locations you know cut up into twos or threes or such and then you align it with the rest of your tableau of these cards and then it allows you to put together a number of the same type of dinosaur so that you can score additional points because not only are you drafting those cards that give you those kind of opportunities to line up particular dinosaurs but you're also lining up opportunities to pick up the score card instead So it allows you to score your own tableau or build towards something instead of taking that particular tile card. Um, There's also ways to eat dinosaurs that gives you points, but also is somewhat problematic. So that's Chomp. That looks pretty fantastic. Kotor is a game about fashion design and modeling and about getting the best kind of outfits out there onto the runway and into the magazines. So this, again, is a different... I think we've seen one or two games that had fashion as its mainstay. 
Um, I really like the artwork here. It certainly looks like it's been designed by fashion designers. And it's a different, unique gameplay element to it. So basically, you have seven turns. These turns are taken simultaneously. This is the idea of these games in general, which is they're supposed to be chosen quickly. This one kind of feels along the lines of like for sale, where you're trying to bid for certain cards to come up with certain tableaus in order to be able to score points based upon magazines. So purchase dresses and then play the dresses and the outfits and the fashions to be able to um, gain the final scoring point situation, which typically is the magazines. Sale is a pirate game, and it basically comes down to a simultaneous cooperative trick-taking game. So think, I think it was it Fox, Foxes in the Forest, I think the second version of it, because you're trying to navigate your ship through all these unsafe waters, and as cards come out, unsafe things happen to the waters, and your job is to just navigate your ship throughout. So it's trick-taking and board movement. Again, I think we've seen this before, but I'd like to see it again. Um, and that's, you know, another different type of game that you can kind of play in this little selection of four. Finally, Mindspace. Uh, this is one of these roll and writes, but it's a flip and write. Um, this is all about your mind and about trying to put together different elements of who you are on a board using colored markers. So the card flips over, gives you the opportunity to color a certain section of your mind using like these little Tetris-like kind of shapes and you will score points based upon uh, these different scoring cards that will require you to have a certain kind of mind so whether you're looking for peace or adventure um, or if you're stressed out or things like that it's a lot of fun uh, it's got dice and what's really interesting about this campaign there's there's upgraded components so the dice look like little brain dice they have that kind of like intricate little lines that are kind of printed into it and basically that will determine what color and what you're able to put onto your particular board. So for small games, typically I'm not really interested in these kind of little tiny games, but it seems to be something a little bit different and a little more accessible. They're about $19 each on the campaign, but you can pick up all four for $76, which includes their upgraded components, which I think is necessary for these games because they are so small that without the upgrade components, it doesn't feel too much like something that you would want to get to the table, you know, on and on and on again. And then there is a campaign pledge of $199, which is a lot, but it allows you to pick up the previous four games in their campaign if you didn't pick them up previously. I look back at the other four games. They're not bad, but they are certainly a lot lighter and more simplistic than these four games. So uh, one or more of these games might be interesting to you. And uh, I think in the U.S., it's a relatively low shipping fee. I think it's like four or five, six bucks, whatever it is. Again, these are small games. Uh, Chomp, Sale, Couture, and Mindspace are currently on Kickstarter, and they will wrap up on Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. I, it's funny. Like I, I think when they started doing this, I wasn't a huge fan. They were like, we're running multiple games at a time. Um, but I do like it because you get like this, and they tend to follow a similar aesthetic. And I've gotten a lot of really good games from their various campaigns. Like their mm. one of their previous ones, I got Bear Raid and Ghosts of Christmas Past or Ghosts mm -hmm. of Christmas. That was those were both very good. Um, so yeah, I'm, I've had my eye on a couple of these. I don't know that I'll back them for reasons we'll talk about later, but uh, <laughs> I, I do like the look of a couple of them. 
um, specifically Mindspace. Polyominoes yeah, and Rolling Right, man. That's mm-hmm. that's cool. Absolutely. All right, so that's all the games that we want to hit our table. Let's go back to games that did hit our table. And Anthony, let's talk about what's at our table. We'll let people know if those games are buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are dodge and they should avoid them. Or in fact, those games are, in fact, the dreaded burn and just have nothing to do with them whatsoever, no matter what the calculations in your head might be. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to talk about Rebuilding Seattle. This is a game we played at PAX. Um, we got through, I think, the whole game. Uh, uh, just they had a, a demo copy, an early release copy there. Um, and I recently got a copy that WizKid sent to us for review purposes um, and have had a chance to play it several more times. Um, so the theme of this game is that it's 1889 or after 1889, I guess, uh, the great fire that destroyed Seattle, effectively, right? So you are now a city planner, and you have to rebuild the city. Um, and mechanically, everything you're doing goes towards rebuilding the city. But then there's a lot of different ways that you'll score points and and actually benefit from the actions you're taking, right? So it's a polyomino-laying game, but all every polyomino you place has a purpose and fits thematically. Um so you have a personal player board and it has tracks for three different things. Um, you have like the restaurant track and the, uh, the shops track and then the, like the business district track or I'm sorry, the, the nightlife track, uh, the business stuff is separate. Um, and then these things, each of these tracks will move up based on different actions you take. And then throughout the game, there are these scoring cards that are available to anybody to claim at any time. And you will score for each of those quality tracks, um, depending on what your current amenity level is in that uh, particular type of quality. So if your orange cube is all the way up, you know, at level five and your amenity track, the orange cube is like 22 um, and your population is 25, then you do a little quick math calculation. You subtract the difference and you get a certain number of points. Um, it sounds more complicated than it is. Basically, you're trying to focus on one or two areas of the city, grow those tracks as much as you can, and then when those scoring things happen, you get stuff, right? The thing that makes this game unique is that those scoring things don't happen at a specific time, right? The actions that you take on your turn can be just to grab one of the scoring cards and activate it. You could do that as the very first thing in the round if you wanted to. You don't have to, and people generally won't because you want to build stuff up, but you could just to mess with everybody else. Um, so what does a turn look like? You have your own little tableau in front of you. You start with a city tile that has a few things pre-printed on it. You can pick up new suburb tiles that help grow it out. Um, and then you can also purchase building cards from a tableau that's available each round. There's a deck of cards for each of the three rounds. You can purchase cards. You can Once you purchase that card, it'll give you something usually gives you a tile that you're going to add to your neighborhood, but then also you'll move up an amenity track and or a quality track and or get some kind of benefit for later, either scoring or income related. Um, You can also activate one of your laws. Each player board, and they're all asymmetrical, has three available laws. You can activate one of them per round. Uh, And these are all like just like more powerful things you can do. so you can gain money or gain points or add tiles or get extra stuff. It, it depends, right? Um, the different types of things you can build 
are interesting, right? So you have ones that match each of the three quality tracks that'll help you move up those tracks for generating points or move up the amenity track to actually activate them better. But you also have like the green income track or income tiles. If those are in your tableau at the end of the round, you get additional money uh, for the next round. You have the yellow expansion tiles that will allow you to place more suburbs out when that scoring card is activated. Um, you have the gray university tiles that allow you to reduce your population. Uh, a big part of this game is balancing out population with amenities. If your population is higher than all of your amenities, you may not score when any of those things happen. So you need to keep them as close as possible. And population grows each round, right? So if you start at 11 and then you add 12 the next round and then add 12 the next round and you never lower it, you're going to have a hard time getting those amenity tracks high enough to actually score anything. So you need to take certain actions that will lower your population. One of those is to send people to college, right? It's to give them a degree and then they go off somewhere else. Um, there's a lot of other ways you can do it as well, um, but that is one of the more efficient ways to do it. So you balance all these things out. You take these different buildings. Uh, you don't know how many actions you're going to get in a round because the round ends when all six of these scoring cards are taken uh, by anybody at the table. And then you do that three times around and you see who has the most um, or the highest score at the end of the game. The thing that makes the game interesting is how closely interconnected all these things are, right? Like you're not just grabbing polyominoes from a draft and placing them into your tableau and trying to fill in space. You are trying to balance which type you get, when you get it, and how it impacts your personal strategy, right? If you're going for like a university strategy where you're like, I'm not going to build a bunch of stuff. I'm just going to kick all the people out of the city, right? I'm going to keep the population low. Then anytime one of those university tiles comes up on a card, you want to grab it because the cards are limited. Um, if you're trying to push up one quality track as high as you can, then you need to make sure that that amenity track is also up because they don't always correlate. The cards that push you up the quality track don't also push you up the amenity tracks. You need two separate types of cards. So the engine you build will depend on what cards are available and what other people are doing. Um, and there's a lot of competition for those resources and elements, right? So you have to be a little flexible at the same time. Um, I found it very interesting. Uh, I immediately had fun with it. The reason I was originally interested in the game is because I'm from Seattle and it says Seattle on the cover. It has like these landmark tiles you can build later in the game that are worth a bunch of points that represent all the landmarks of the city. So like the stadiums and the Space Needle and Pike Place Market and all that good stuff. Um, but it also turns out the game is very good, right? It has polyominoes, which I love, but it uses them creatively and interestingly, which I'll admit not every game does. Sometimes a game has polyominoes to have polyominoes. Um, but this one, it really does it in an interesting way. And it's relatively quick, right? It's only three rounds. Yeah, there's no like set time limit because if nobody takes those scoring cards, then the, the round just keeps going. But eventually people run out of money and they have to take the cards. Um, I would say, you know, you could realistically play through this game in an hour. Like once people know the rules, like it's pretty quick. Um, and playing it solo, which I've done a few times now as well, you know, it's like a 30, 40 minute experience, which is pretty much the sweet spot. So I really enjoyed this. I liked it a lot when we first played it. I like it even more now that I've played it a few more times. Um, so this is a buy. You should definitely check this game out. It does interesting, unique and new things with familiar mechanics. And it has just the right balance of, of length 
to it, right? At no point are you going to get to a point where you're like, I can't do anything interesting. You can always do something interesting. And as soon as you run out of things to do, it's time to move on to the next round. And then a bunch of new interesting stuff comes out again. So Rebuilding Seattle, great game. Um, come, It's out from WizKids. I believe it's out either this week or next week. Uh, and uh, highly recommended. Yeah, I had a lot of fun when we played this at PAX Unplugged. And I was really taken back by how ingenious all the different mechanics were kind of integrated together so that nothing really felt superfluous at any point. It all just blended together, made a lot of sense. You're cleaning out land. Some of those land locations have different benefits to them that you want to keep available because it's available for everyone in that particular city. So you don't want to cover up all those valuable landmarks and things that are there. And yet at the same time, I guess because of infrastructure and you have to build buildings, it does cover up those things. So that was a really interesting kind of push and pull mechanic because you score points off those different icons. But at the same time, you see that juicy real estate go out there and you're like, oh, I can build a big gigantic building out there and score all these points. But I'm going to lose points because... I'm covering up stuff that's valuable to the citizenry. Oh, it's a kind of push and pull. And then you have your laws. And what's fun about the laws is it's not a single special ability for your player. It is a choice of a couple that all fit thematically into that particular gameplay style. And everyone has different kind of bonuses, laws that they can play, but you only get to play one that particular round. So it does limit you, but it does give you a number of options to kind of utilize throughout. And then as you're building up, you could specialize or you could diversify. And then usually that is the kind of push and pull about board games where, I don't know, personally, I like the diversity because I'd like to be able to come back to the game and play a different way instead of having like, this is the best option. But again, you know, it's a push and pull kind of situation. But what you're able to do in this game in order to ensure that your strategy might be more, you know, advantageous than anybody else's is you have that situation where kind of, I guess I would look at like maybe roll for the galaxy, but I guess it's more particular for race for the galaxy where you pick up those scoring markers. So if you know, you need a certain thing at a certain time, you can score it. If you see someone else is building up a certain track, you could take that turn to activate that before they're able to kind of build up their particular section to the value where they would score a lot of points. So there's a lot of player interaction for what would seem like, you know, multiplayer solitaire because of those particular actions that come into play to score points and those markets that you're trying to pull the tiles from and those giant tiles too, which are a lot of fun and trying to squeeze those into your particular areas. I really enjoyed this game. I, I think after we played this or actually during play, I was like, I'm buying this. So, yeah, when it becomes available, I'm picking this one up. It's a buy for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great game. It's It, it, it kind of came out of nowhere. I kind of knew about it because of the name Seattle. Like, that was in there. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything else about it. Um, so it was really glad we stumbled across it at PAX because uh, it's a great game and you should check it out. Absolutely. Well, a game that popped up on my radar again, in particular because there was a recent announcement that Azul, the board game, is coming out with a mini edition. Not super mini, but definitely mini, mini. 
So it's going to be in a little kind of, I, I guess I would say little, but it's going to be in like a large tuck box kind of situation. And the tiles are smaller. The, you know, the, the tile placement areas are smaller. The boards have an ability to kind of lock the tiles in. So it's almost like a travel version of Azul. So I was like, oh yeah, I remember Azul. We played this all the time until we stopped playing it. So I wanted to bring this out to a new audience. I brought some new players to the table who've never played games with me before. And in particular, the Azul that I like the most, and I know I'm alone on this, is Azul Stained Glass of Sinatra. This is create beautiful windows with colorful glass more efficiently than anyone else. So basically, if you played Azul, it's about selecting tiles from these different tile locations. And you're going to have four tiles in each of the sections. You're going to pick a tile. And when you pick that particular tile, you're going to take all of that tile that's available and you're going to play it on your player board, and it's going to score points. That's the basis for Azul amongst its many, many iterations at this point. Azul, the stained glass version of it, has really beautiful little stained glass pieces. They're not glass, they're plastic. They almost look like Starburst. Please do not eat them. They are plastic. <laughs> Nonetheless, they are very bright and colorful and sparkly, and again, when you play a game that's all about an abstract selection game that you put onto a board, you want things to be as bright and colorful as possible. There probably is nothing more bright and colorful than stained glass. So picking up these stained glass pieces, placing them on your stained glass board, because your board itself is going to be made up of different sections. So think of, you know, a very fancy Gothic church that has all of these different slivers of stained glass that are built up. And as the board, as your own player board is kind of arranged, you put these randomly kind of selected uh, slivers of that board together to make up your own player board. And as the game goes on, you select from those different areas, you put the color tokens based upon those slivers, and that's what's going to be able to score you points. Now, the challenge here is you have a glazier. This is the person that puts the glass pieces into place. And based on where the glazier is located, you can put those glass pieces to the right of them. So... It gives you a little more game challenge than the original Azul because you have to figure out where you're going to be able to put those pieces. Not like the original Azul where you have every opportunity to put things anywhere as long as you have the appropriate space available. This one, the player piece moves throughout the board, gets re, you know restarted at the beginning so that you can place your pieces in proper locations. So there's a little more strategy to it here. Once you are able to get one of those player slivers kind of filled up they flip over one piece goes down to the bottom you try to fill up that sliver again once that little pay player sliver is filled up a second time it moves off the board and again it offers another different strategy in order to kind of win the game in addition to all that as you're putting pieces on the bottom of the board what's really fun is the scoring is not just for that particular sliver of player board but it'll score everything to the right again another challenge on what do you try to score early in the game so that you can score everything else later in the game. Finally, there's two ways to play the bottom board. There's an A side and a B side. A side based upon clusters, B side based upon numbers of colors of that particular type of glass tile, and you score your points. I've, I've enjoyed most of the Azuls. I have not played the most recent one, but of the three that I played, the first three I played, I've enjoyed all of them. 
Azul Stained Glass. Sinatra has always been my favorite, again, because it offers a little more challenge to the gameplay than the original, but it's not so complex that it takes you out of the game a little bit like Summer Pavilion. It might be more of a gamer's version of Azul, so it balances perfectly in between really non-gamers and gamers. So uh, Azul Stained Glass, I purchased this. I would purchase it again. It's a buy. Yeah, it's a it's a great game. I like. I own the first three Azuls, and mm-hmm. I like all three of them. I, I feel like they all have a, a purpose. Um, <laughs> I have not played Queen's Garden, although I've heard some questionable <laughs> commentary on that. Mostly that it's not really an Azul game. It just has the Azul branding sure. slapped on there. Um, but yeah, this is the one that really I was like, oh, snap, you could take this formula and reuse it in multiple ways, and it really works. So yeah, I love it too. Excellent. All right, so now on to our feature review. Our feature review this week is, of course, BJ Questions. So, BJ Questions, what is the value of a game? Is there a particular formula? How do you decide what to make as far as purchases are concerned? And what keeps games on your shelf based upon those kind of feelings and calculations that you make? So, Anthony, we talked about this at the beginning of the, story, at the show, and I guess we also talked about this at the store when we've been there way back in the day trying to figure out what games work best for us, what games we want to purchase. And again, some of this is financial, but generally when we look at board games internally, we have a monologue with ourselves or we go through some kind of basic conscious or unconscious calculation on a the value of a game for us. And again, of course, is that purchase worth it to own it like we do with our feet for our, you know at the table but also is it something that's going to stay with us long term or maybe not maybe that's not part of the calculation so i know for myself this has been a troubling situation i mean i think we're unique as you know board game media that we have to get more and more games to the table and a more diverse selection to the table but the games that we choose to purchase and the games that we choose to keep is a very challenging, delicate, dangerous kind of situations in some part because games are awesome. We want to own them all, can't own them all. We don't have a Pokeball. So what do you think about when you're looking at board games? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I had better advice for collecting and culling. Um, I don't know. For me, it's, it's definitely evolved over time, right? Yes. Like early on, it was, do I have... Like my my view on value then would be, will I get something out of this game at some point, right? Like some amount of time with it, right? Is it, and so a lot of those things would be like, am I going to paint this? Like yes. I own a lot of games that I've still never played, but I've painted some elements of or I plan to, right? Um, and I'm still okay with that. Like value wise, I'm like, I'm going to use it in terms of, you know, some elements of the hobby, but maybe not for the intended purpose. It's fine. I'm okay with that. Other I games think... I buy because I'm like, well, maybe it'll go up in value mm. or be harder to find. Like I buy expansions for everything because they make so few of them, right? There's some expansions, relatively recent ones that I didn't pick up and now I can't find because they only print like a thousand of them and then they go out of print and nobody's selling them. Sure. Um, and so if I see an expansion for a game I like, whether I think I'm going to play it or not, I'm like, I'll just buy it because then if I don't, I won't be able to find it. So there's a lot of those elements. I don't tend to think as much about like value per play because 
then I get sad because there's a lot of games that don't get played very much. Sure. Um, but I'd like to more just because there are a lot of games on my shelf that don't get played very much. Yeah, I think initially when I was looking at board games, obviously you like something, you played something, or you think something looks cool, you want to buy it to own it, to keep it as part of your collection, to put it you know, in a game rotation so that you could actually get it to the table. And I think initially when I was trying to figure out you know, when you were looking at the online stores or local friendly game stores, you were like, I need, I want to buy games. I have some expendable capital. What should I purchase? And I guess initially my calculations were based upon what actually, you know, people around my table would play. So in that early calculation, I would think about what kind of theme and genre. Now, again, we're going back 10 plus years where games were not as well integrated as they are today, where back in the day, a Euro game was a dry spreadsheet Euro, and a thematic game was colors and miniatures and plastic, but not much else. So I remember thinking like, look, I need to build a collection. I need to have a couple of games that really fit, you know, different people at the table. So when I was coming up with that kind of formula, I was like, hey, do I own this type of IP, this type of genre, this type of mechanic. And I, you know, getting one of each of these that would be available for the different game players at the table was essential. So my formula was always based upon who was going to be at the table and would they play this game. And that worked for maybe about five minutes until I realized that in the end, you can't predict what people will like to play. And if people like to play a certain IP or genre or theme, it's not necessarily they want to play it in board game form. Again, talking sometimes 10 years in the past, board games were not as, I guess, expansive and as, as integrated in society. So it was like, all right, cool. I own a bunch of different themes, which I kind of like, or a bunch of different mechanics, which I kind of like. And this idea of purchasing for the, the game table didn't really work as well. And now I spent a lot of money on games that are not getting to the table. So the formula there didn't really work very well. So what I kind of pivoted to as I went on was, you know, trying to figure out replayability. Because the idea about board games, more so than video games, especially back in the day, was these things would be available for you long term. So let me purchase games that will get multiple replay value. The replay value of a game was the essential quantitative value that I, I thought was essential to board games. I know we talked about this way back in the day. I think like, will this get replay value? Will we keep this for years? Will our kids play these games? <laughs> you know, will this part be part of like, you know, a, a you know, give, you know, a tradition in which you hand these games down to other people. I know you have kids. I'm, I'm sure you're hoping that your kids will play these games years to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was definitely a value calculation early. Um, it's changed a lot because when I got into the hobby, my son was a year old. Mm. So he's 11 now. And Early on, it's really easy when your kids can barely even talk to be like, oh, I think they'll like this game. I'll buy it now because we'll play it later. Like, sure. Okay. It's really just me justifying a purchase. Now I'm like, I know what they like. I'm well aware of what they're willing to do. 
And so I can't really make those justifications as much. Um, mm. But at the same time, there are certain games where I'm like, I really do think he'll enjoy playing this. Like, I have a lot of stuff for Star Wars Legion and Marvel Crisis Protocol. And I'm like, this is because I know I could probably get my kids to play these. Specifically, my son, who likes playing like two-player mm. like fighting games. Um, and so that's that's fine. I'm like, And that helps me justify that for that reason. Um, but at the same time, keeping in mind that unless they go crazy for the hobby like I did, they're not going to want to play games, you know, 10, 15 times a week. So having 40 different versions of the same type of thing to play with my children is a little nuts. So I can't keep justifying that. There's only so many games they're willing to play and there's only so many rules they can keep in their head. Sure. Yeah. I think that was a part of it too, was like one of these kind of very niche hobby, you know, tabletop board gaming and then a niche genre on top of it kind of adds to the challenges and at the same time does this get long-term gameplay by somebody in the future that you may or may not know that might actually want to play that game right i think what then kind of moved on from starting with replayability and then i guess initially going towards you know initially the game group then replayability, and then what moved then was game presence or table presence. Because attracting gamers to the table, if you went to a friendly local game store, or if you were at the mall or a brewery or anywhere else, you want to bring people over, but the only way to bring people over to the table was a game that had presence, a game that may had a gimmick, or the game that might have looked so fantastical that people actually wanted to gather around and maybe sit down at the table and play it, so now I was looking at games that were, you know, again, for lack of a terrible lack of, you know, better terms, blinged out, right? Upgraded, right. shiny, big, you know, poppy kind of things like that. And the game industry kind of responded to it. We see a lot of games that got a lot of, you know, super upgrades to the artwork and the, the game design and the miniatures are better and the components are, are better and everything is like super deluxe level and it's not just a first player marker that's beautiful. Everything's beautiful in the game. And that would bring a lot more people to the table. And sometimes that's why you're purchasing games to bring more people to the ten table to attract more people to play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly games I've purchased where I'm like, oh, this will be really nice. Like the reason I got Brass, the new version of Brass, is because the old version was so ugly. And it was you're not going to get that played, right? Like, this is a pretty version of this game. Oh, it's also amazing. That's good. Yes. <laughs> um, um, the reason I bought the fancy updated version of Suburbia is because it's so pretty and it's mm. it got all these different color options and all the tiles are so amazing. It has other issues that make it hard to get it out. But I was thinking of table presence and I was thinking of how to attract people to that game, um, a game that I enjoy, right? Same reason I backed the Castles of Burgundy upgrade. I'm like, it's such an ugly game. Like yeah. historically, for such an amazing game, all the productions of it up to now have been really ugly. So I wanted a nicer version. Whether that's going to be worth it or not, I have no idea. But that definitely has impacted my decisions. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the same thing for me, too. I think there's so many games like that that you purchase because you think it would be attractive. It has that kind of appeal to it. I think Everdell, initially, even without having played the game, it has this giant tree which when you actually play the base game, it's like, this is not really very functional because the meeples fall off and anything, but it has a giant tree. Or you play Photosynthesis. That's another game that looks really attractive. Another tree-based game. 
or any of those games that have like giant miniatures on it. Because again, when you play board games, you know, when you play games that have like significant strategy and depth to them and you watch other, you know, either yourself or other people play it, they're usually their head is down. They're really engrossed in the game. There's not a lot of waving of hands or just explosive reactions because you could tell on some level that the thematic gameplay was enacting inside their mind, but you weren't seeing it on the table because the table board was any number of, <laughs> of shades of beige and shades of green for some particular reason. So it's just like, it's here. The theme is here in the board. You just can't see it. You have to engross yourself into it. You have to like, you know, create a wonderful vision. And now you have beautiful, gigantic, shiny kind of components. Like we just talked about Azul. Like, hey, these things look like, you know, Starburst. It's so bright and colorful. I want to play this game now. Like, mm -hmm. yes, the toy factor. The toy factor got you. And oh, yeah. I think, I think that was a lot of reasons why we picked a lot of those miniature games up because the toy factor vac factor was so high. Like the Funkoverse, again, beautifully painted miniatures on the board that you could play with or any number of games. So um, that was something we had not seen historically, but it was something that like really blew up. Yeah. 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 Def that's definitely, I went through my phase of toy factor, um, yes. you know, and again, we just talked about backing Marvel United, which is definitely toy factor, mm -hmm. but I, I also feel like I've toned it down a lot because at a certain point you only need so many toys. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think there was, I think the X wing X wing miniatures game, which I think is now just called X wing game or X wing miniatures. I think that toy factor was almost like, Hey, I could own this and justify it based upon the toy factor of it, even if I don't get the game played. Right. I have on my shelves downstairs, I have several miniatures from board games that some, some of those games I don't even own. Like I bought the Power Rangers, the original Megazord, the miniature, which is not that, it's pretty big. It's like eight inches tall. But I bought that on its own because it was an expansion from renegade and it's just on a shelf and i have the dinosaur from the batman gotham chronicles and i have the batmobile and i have the the throne from game of thrones I, I got that off of ebay like these are just toys effectively but they are game pieces too um some of those games i own some of them i don't none of them i've played so <laughs> it's definitely they make some really cool stuff and it's fun to have those things but it, it different reasons for buying them for sure Sure. And I think then we, you and I, Anthony, both moved on at different points to more of a curated fashion of which we were doing collections. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you talked about this many times about your Feld collection, trying yeah. to collect all the Feld games. I still technically have them all until Marrakesh comes out because um, I didn't back that one. But yeah, no, it's definitely like I've gone down that road. I have all of the Lacerda games. I've, I've kept up with those. Um, there's certain things where I'm just like, I'd like to have them all. I have almost all the Rosenberg games, all the ones I like anyways. Sure. So yeah, there's certain, and like, I don't need all the Rosenberg games. A lot of them are very similar to each other. I just mm. like having all of them, you know, or Feld. Like I own, I bought Bruges at some point. I don't like Bruges, but it was a hole in that collection. Yeah. So the, and then it's a justification as far as like the collection or the collector in you to complete. There's a completionist. Yeah. And, and we've talked about that a lot too, that the calculation, like you said, 
would you have bought Bruges if it was just a regular game not by made by Feld? Absolutely not. No. But because it was, the purchase is kind of substantiated based upon that collection that you're building. And I think we talked about X-Wing miniatures, um, Star Trek Attack Wing, a lot of those kind of miniature games kind of bring you into that. And I think Kickstarter does that too, because Kickstarter is is very much an all or nothing kind of proposition. And we just recently talked about Marvel United, where I backed the whole thing just because I don't even know what to do anymore. <laughs> just because <Yeah>. like, <laughs> I'm going to play this. I have not played this version because it's not available in retail, not even the core sets based in retail or some of the new gameplay modules are not available yet. So I don't know if I'm going to like them. So I have the other things. So I don't know, some cost fallacy. I don't know. Like I'm already yeah. like need, you know, waist deep in this. I guess I need to go a little bit further in this because again, they've gotten smart over the years where, you know, it used to be a time and place where the games didn't work. You know, it wasn't reversible, right? You couldn't play a, a current game with the old components and the old gameplay. Now that's not the case so much, especially with the miniature game. So this Marvel United, I may not like any of these, like you mentioned, Anthony, like these D-list characters, but there's equipment. Yeah. But there's, you know, campaigns and there's team cards that you could put into it for the previous stuff. And I think Simon always did this best, especially with Arcadia Quest, where I think we bet we both backed uh, Mass Mora. And oh it was gosh, like, yeah. neither one of us wanted that game, but they had the cards and had some figures that you could transfer over. And I was like, damn it, I have to back yeah. this now. <laughs> I almost, I played the game once, didn't like it, took the miniatures and the cards out, dumped them in the Arcadia Quest box and threw away the Mesmora box. Because I'm like, I'm never going to play this again, <laughs> but I'm keeping the, this is the reason I did this. Sure. I knew it's the reason I did this. This is the value I got from this purchase. And now I'm done with it. <laughs> so... Yeah, and I think we talked about this too with the collecting and the and the culling. Some games you want to collect because you want to be a collector. You want to say, this is my collection. And even if yeah. you don't get the game to the table, having a game, whether it has a special you know place in your life for re- personal reasons or because it's a certain creator or a certain theme, maybe you want to own all the farming games or all the polyomino games or all the space games or any number of different things like that, or I guess all the games from a particular artist, like, you know, tool, I mean, just beautiful works yeah. of art, no matter what the game might be. Some games are not as great as the Vitala Serta games, but it's, you know, tool artwork. So yeah. certainly that could be a rationale for a collection and the reason for a particular purchase. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. There are several games in my collection that I own for non-traditional reasons, right? They're like games that maybe I, just like the look of them. I want it on the shelf. It's pretty to look at. It's a interesting take or spin or version of something like um, we talked about recently uh, Lacrimosa, right? Yes. The game that we both gave a play rating. I liked it a lot and it kind of cooled on it, but I'm going to keep it because the theme is unique mm-hmm. and I like having that theme and I like the way it looks on the shelf. So I'm keeping the game, right? It's, <laughs> I may not play it very much, but I'm keeping it for those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of games that, you know, on the opposite side, gets a lot of play, even though it may not be your favorite game, but you know family or friends or your game group love that particular game. So it gets a lot of, you know, hits in the rotation. 
And that maybe that gives it the most value to you. So maybe right. then in that case, it's not the toy factor or the artwork or the particular designer, artist, anything as far as that's concerned. It just gets a lot of play. And then maybe you, if you have a banged up copy, that's really well loved at that point. So a lot of different versions. And I guess, Anthony, when we talked about cultivating and curating our game collection, and obviously what we're doing here a lot is kind of, I don't know, justifying some of the purchases that we're making and trying to figure out personally, mentally, emotionally, and financially why we make the certain purchases that we make so that it's easier for us to justify or make smart decisions. Because I guess a lot of times you want to buy a game because it's on sale and you figure, and I, and I did this one, one point way back when I'm like, Hey, a movie ticket's 15, 20 bucks. If I purchase a game that's on sale for 15 or 20 bucks and I get a gameplay out of it for an hour or two hours, it's justified. But then like, I think we talked about last time, now you have shelf space yeah. to deal with. It's justified in the moment, but that, it, that only works when you have space. Yeah. Cause then like, where do you do with it? Where does it sure. go? Yeah. And I think space also kind of equals into that, you know, comes into that formula at some point. So, you know, whether it's the cost of the game over the gameplay of the game, over the space of the game, the table presence of the game, the replayability of the game, and I guess once upon a time, there was a grail value to some of these games because games mm. were not being reprinted. So you kept games that, I don't know, like you thought that they would never come out again. And now we've seen a lot of reprints. So maybe the value changes or drops. Yeah. I know a lot of people out there purchase games for resale value. I've purposely went out of my way not to do that because I think that would finally crack my brain. Yeah. If I started thinking about purchasing games as like future investments I started to do that, like so. There was that point at which um, Fantasy Flight lost all the 40k licenses, and my local store had all those games. So I'm like, oh, I'll pick up those copies. And so I had like, I bought a Fury of Dracula, and I bought uh, Forbidden Stars, and I bought a couple other games. And like within the year, I'm like, why do I have these? I have no interest in playing this. I don't like Fury of Dracula. I literally bought this for speculation purposes. Yeah. And sure, it's worth more money now than when I owned it, but I'm happy that I passed it on to somebody who will actually play it. The only game of those I kept was Forbidden Stars, and that's because it's a very good game and it's at print, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get a copy of it. Um, but yeah, the speculation thing is, again, space, but also selling games sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Shipping is expensive. People complain. If the postman drops it, then you get yelled at because you did a terrible job of packaging it. It's like a whole thing. I've, I hate it. And people are so mean. <laughs> it's just not a fun experience. So... You know, I have some stuff I want to sell now and I just don't want to do it. It's just, it's it's no good. And I think the the final calculation that I think comes after you own or start to own so many games is I think a term we used to use in the past, Anthony, like are these games lifestyle games? Right. Because you start to build collections in certain areas based upon, again, like we talked about many different situations, mechanics, genre ips designers whatever it is like we talked about marvel united like you and i now own the vast majority of these three campaigns like am i going to become a marvel united person like am is that the game that i carry with me in my bag because i paid so much for all of these games that like now i have to kind of put that into my regular rotation or have that set up on a table to get all of the games played because, again, there's multiple expansions to the game. 
And then, and then once you start purchasing and continue to purchase in that same area, and again, that area might be a sweet spot. It may not be a negative whatsoever, but that has come into my mind a lot too. Like, you know, becoming the person at the game night that's known for that particular game or that genre of game or that mechanic of the game or a Euro gamer versus an Amerithrash gamer, you know, what it is it that you bring to the table. And again, that may not be a bad idea. Like as far as putting together the future purchases are concerned, like I know that you love war of the ring and I love war of the ring. Why not just become war of the ring game players, right? Like there are people who are just like Catan players. That's their thing. They play Catan. There's meetup groups just for Catan. And I'm like, well, that seems pretty limiting, but that's their life and that's their hobby and they love it. And it has, I guess on for them somewhat infinite, you know, replayability. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to take a look to see what is the rationales, the formula, the computations that you make in order to purchasing games to make future purchase of games. I think it's pretty much in essential to be aware as much as possible, because I think for you and I, Anthony, we've gone over 10 plus years of this. We've gone down different tracks as far as like, I'm purchasing these games for these reasons. These are added to my collection for these reasons. And I will purchase more games again based upon the previous purchases. But that's what's going on with us, Anthony. Our listeners have some answers to these questions as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So I basically asked this question: like, how do you determine the value of a game in your collection? Number of games, times played, enjoyment from owning it, actual physical value, etc. Um, so over on Patreon, we got a few good answers. Matthew says, "My wife and I value games on how they make us feel when we play them." Uh, Tang Garden, for example, is our favorite game to play together with well over 100 plays. Wow. I got to play my copy. Jeez. Um, <laughs> it was our first major Kickstarter as well. So there's a memory of that. That's, I do also have my first major Kickstarter, which is a game I haven't played since we got it. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Whereas something like Wingspan, which we also love, feels very replaceable. Um, all that being said, I will never sell my Colossus edition of Mosaic because I will never be willing to pay the retail for that now. Fair enough. Yeah, there's plenty of games like that you got a good deal on on Kickstarter you, you can't sell. Um, our good buddy Drew gives a very complex formula. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Drew. Uh, value equals CF times 0.80 times RF plus 0.20 times PF. Um, so he's got variables in here for cost factor, rating factor, and play factor. And then mentions that if a game is uh, has more value, if he could sell the game for more than the value of, of what he rates it, then he will try to sell it. Which is, uh, hey, I love math. I would love to have something like this. It would just tell me what to get rid of. I wouldn't have to think about it. So good on you, Drew. I might try to see what happens if I if I put, punch those numbers in. This is what I'm saying. Uh, Whiskey Punk says, personally, the value of a game is how much I enjoy it and how much fun the game group gets out of it. Buying and selling, I would never buy or sell a used copy of a game for more than the retail cost. I judge prices based on how much I'd be willing to buy a game for, and that's the price I'd sell it for. Nice. So very much just based on where your own personal values are in terms of buying and selling games. I'm with you on that. I, I'm not up for paying over retail on anything. Um, and then Tom says, for me, the value of a game is the three E's, how much effort, energy, and expense I put into it. It can be how often it gets played, how much I bling out the game, either on my own or with a deluxe edition, i.e. Castle of Burgundy, Terraforming Mars, Big Box, how much time I take to deep dive deeper into the game. It all relates back to a fourth E, 
enjoyment. Ooh. So that's everybody over on uh, Patreon. Again, you can, these questions a week, they go up every Tuesday, sometimes also Thursday. Um, if you are a backer at any level, you can answer these questions and be entered into our weekly contest. Absolutely. And again, thank you all for hitting us up on Facebook and Twitter and Patreon. Yeah. So uh, congratulations to Tom, uh, this week's winner. I'll nice. be reaching out to you with uh, uh, our prize options for this week. And we'll take your formula and run it against our collection. Hopefully not cry at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is the thing. I'm like, <laughs> these are cool. I like these formulas. I want to try it. And I'm like, I love it. I, I feel like I would create a spreadsheet, run through it and be like, you can get rid of three games. I'm like, no. <laughs> It's true, but I think it's it's more important for this one in helping us make better purchases for the future right. by understanding the purchases we made previously. So, because uh, again, I think it would be wonderful to go back to that kind of curated collection that all has meaning and value to us. And when we make purchases in the future, we make that based upon that value proposition innately, like initially, um, not just after the fact. We're like, ooh, oh no, ooh. <laughs> yeah so i again thank you all for putting together those calculations hopefully they benefit you a great deal and hopefully they can help you make purchases in the future so until next time this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you all a seat at the table take care everyone